Hello and welcome to Musonomics. This week on Musonomics, the rocky launch of Tidal and the heightened competition among digital music services. And I'll talk with Tom Silverman, founder of Tommy Boy Entertainment, about the prospects for a $100 billion music business. If you're a creator, if you're in the music business, or you're in any of the creative industries, you have to believe that we can increase the value of creation again, and we can find a way to integrate creation with technology in a way that actually generates more revenue than it ever did before. I'm Larry Miller from NYU Steinhardt. That and much more on this episode of Musonomics. And speaking of the music streaming industry, is there any better place to start the show than with this guy? Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is That guy, of course, is Jay-Z. Earlier this year, Jay-Z paid $56 million for the Swedish company Behind Tidal, a new music streaming platform that he promised would change the course of history. And he successfully got everyone talking. At the high-profile launch event in New York, Kanye, Rihanna, Madonna, Nicki Minaj, and even Daft Punk joined Jay-Z to testify, somewhat uncomfortably, about Tidal's value proposition. Here's Alicia Keys. For today, we announced the launch of Tidal, the first ever artist-owned global music and entertainment platform. <laughs> yes! Yes! Our goal is simple. We want to create a better service and a better experience for both fans and artists. And that is our promise to the world. Title offers two different subscription levels. Pay $10 a month and you get access to 25 million songs and 75,000 music videos streamed at 320 kilobits. Pay $20 a month and you get access to all of that media at four times the bitrate in FLAC, or free lossless audio codec. The service is not entirely unlike its biggest competitors, Spotify and Deezer. Deezer even already offers higher quality audio streaming just like Tidal. So what sets Tidal apart? In theory, Tidal's robust class of superstars was supposed to help kickstart the new platform, providing artist exclusives and championing the importance of fairer compensation for artists. Spotify pays out 70% of revenue to record labels and music publishers. Tidal promises to pay out 75%. At first, it seemed to be working. Rihanna, Madonna, Kanye, Chris Martin, all coming together with Jay-Z, ponying up $56 million to get this thing started, then secretly, one by one, signing artist after artist. Move over, my man, Lucius Lyon. Tonight's top story, <laughs> Jay-Z's new title, Empire. This is going to make him, you know, probably the most powerful person in music. We already know he's a hip-hop cash king. His net worth is over $500 million. I think Jay is just sort of grabbed the bull by the horns and said we're going to do things differently around here and he's got some of the biggest artists in the business but i think it's fantastic i can't wait to try it title spent its first week near the top 20 apps downloaded in the u.s itunes app store and on the tip of everyone's tongues but downloads plummeted and title dropped out of even the top 500. in the google play store title hasn't fared much better peaking at number seven before dropping out of the overall charts altogether. Public opinion seems to have turned on title as well. 
Jay-Z's new music streaming service title was launched with great fanfare just last month, and it's already run into some big problems, it appears. The CEO is out, titles cutting staff, and the competition is getting huge new waves of funding. You know, okay, this is great for you know, Jay-Z and his friends and everything, they're gonna get a bigger slice of the revenue. Yep. But what about the smaller artists that are still coming on, you know? Mm. And what about the users? I mean, it's like, you think you could just put Nicki Minaj and Beyonce and Jay-Z on stage and you all just go get 30 bucks a month from me? That's kind of cocky, I didn't like it's it. It's extremely cocky. It was, it was a big flop. Flop! Flop right. city, chick. Flop, like it flopped flop, hard. Flop. Spotify has 15 million paid subscribers and over 60 million in total. The Beats music service, now part of Apple, has muscle, a big brand, and relationships with 800 million iTunes customers, though not all of them download music. Tidal had 40,000 subscribers at the beginning of April. Listen, first the fat boys break up, now every day I wake up, somebody got a problem with hope. What's up, y'all fed up, cause I got a little cheddar and my wreck is moving out the store. Young spitting at me, young rappers getting at me, my big, but Exactly. Titles got a long way to grow, but the streaming market is fertile ground for growth. To learn more about the streaming industry and what we should think about the title launch, we sat down with Larry Rosen of Edison Research, the author of The Infinite Dial, a widely read blog and annual study on audio consumption. Larry, here we are about a month since the launch of Tidal. What are your observations on the fully interactive music streaming space that is dominated by Spotify? Well, it's, it remains really early days, not just for Tidal, but for the entire space. Uh, as you said, we're just about a month into Tidal, and it's been a bit of a rocky first month, but it's just a month, and their story has a long way yet to play itself out. And in America, Spotify is really just a couple years, and Rhapsody is just a couple years longer than that. So the whole space is really still in its infancy. I don't have much doubt that five years from now, there's, there will be brands that we've never heard of, which will be significant in the space. And there'll be brands that are there now that will have left the space. So if you look back to the very early days, for instance, of the automobile industry, there were dozens and dozens of car companies that none of us have ever heard of anymore. It was an industry where lots of people jumped in, lots of capital jumped in. And then over time, things shook out and there was Chevrolet and Ford and, and certain brands that exist still to this day. Uh, but there used to be many, many more brands. And um, even 20 years ago, there were many, many more brands. So I think it's, it's very much in its infancy at this point. There's room for lots of players to launch because there's plenty of capital. It's an exciting space that people want to invest in at the moment. And, and we'll see how it shakes itself out. But in the work that you've done so far with music service brands and their penetration in the space, what have you seen, especially among younger music consumers? When you look at brands, the, and for the total digital space, not just for these uh, fully interactive brands, by far the biggest brand is Pandora, way out ahead of anybody else. iTunes has such a natural advantage built in because everyone knows the name iTunes. iTunes Radio, therefore, is a very big brand as is iHeartRadio, which doesn't get as much credit uh, as it probably deserves because I think serious music people don't maybe take it quite as seriously, but they've done an incredible job of building brand awareness using the power of AM, FM radio stations that they're affiliated with, also using big scale concerts and festivals and all kinds of clever things. Spotify would be uh, at the slightly behind, but it's the next tier of big names in the space. Certainly among the fully interactive 
brand Spotify is number one. And you know, Rhapsody, which is the, the beginner, uh, uh, you know, the one that's been around the longest by far, it doesn't get as much attention or credit as it deserves. It has a brand name in the industry as well. And so what differences are you seeing as you look across demographics and the adoption of different music services? And let's not forget about Pandora and the more radio-like, less interactive streaming services. Spotify does much, much better to the younger side. It is very, very strong, 12 to 24. Still not anywhere near as strong as Pandora, uh, or even as strong as iHeartRadio at the young end, but it tilts to the young end. So if you isolate, say, 12 to 24-year-olds, Spotify is significantly stronger among younger people than it is among, say, people 25 and older. There's also a clear split between the fully interactive products and the more radio products. And that's why I think there's room for a lot of players in this space. They are truly two different strategies. I mean, if you look at Pandora, Pandora is really targeting radio. Uh, And if you look at Spotify and Deezer and those kinds of products, they're really targeting one's owned music collection, their CDs or vinyl or or their digital files. Um, And so if you take it back to, say, 25 years ago, your basic options were listening to the radio, for music, were listening to the radio or your CDs or, or tapes or vinyl or whatever you had. And that same kind of split still exists. I mean, Pandora and products like that, iHeart, are more radio-centric, and Spotify, Rhapsody, etc., are more analogous to what was 25 years ago, your owned music collection on whatever format you had it. Um, and so I think there's room for both of them to grow. Now, clearly, there's a bit of, of uh, movement from a lot of the players in that fully interactive space, like Spotify, towards the radio side as well. I think Spotify sees that there's a big market for free, and um, so they're, they're making it easier for someone to fulfill some of that radio type usage and in hopes of getting them to start paying Spotify. And we'll see how that plays itself out. So if you were the betting type, what would you forecast for Spotify, Tidal, and even Rhapsody over, say, the next 18 to 24 months? Well, I have this stock answer to a question like that, which is I'm not really a futurist. I'm more of a presentist. I'm a researcher, and researchers do a really good job of measuring what is the in, what is the situation today. There is little doubt that they will grow over the next 18 months. I mean, that's an easy bet. Even, you know, like I said, titles off to a rocky start, but they're only a month in. Are they likely to be bigger 17 months from now? Yeah, I'd say the odds are way better than 50-50 that they will be. Um, there's a lot of resources there. They put some marketing behind it, maybe change some strategic aspects to what they're doing. That song is Ingenue by Adams for Peace, a supergroup comprised of Radiohead's Tom York, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and producer Nigel Godrich. Last year, Adams for Peace pulled all of their music off of Spotify. York feels that the Spotify streaming model does not fairly compensate artists, and he's not the only artist to raise this concern. Late last year, Taylor Swift very publicly pulled her music completely off Spotify, 
when the streaming giant refused her request to make her music available exclusively to paid subscribers, but not free users. Spotify hopes she'll change her mind and join them in building a new music economy that works for everyone. They believe fans should be able to listen to music wherever and whenever they want, and that artists have an absolute right to be paid for their work and protected from piracy. Spotify's website says that's why they pay nearly 70% of revenue back to the record companies and music publishers that own music rights. Spotify projects that if it can grow to 40 million subscribers, that paid back revenue could quadruple for every artist. The underlying concept here is that if more people pay for their music, artists can make much more money. For more on this, take a look at spotifyartists.com. But for now, Taylor Swift's catalog is available for download on iTunes, but not if you want to stream it on Spotify. Oh, and her music is, of course, available on video streaming giant YouTube, where just one of her songs, Blank Space, has been seen over 800 million times. But wait, isn't YouTube free to consumers too? Well, YouTube recently launched MusicKey, a new $10 a month ad-free service. We don't know how many people have opted to pay for MusicKey, but over a billion unique viewers are watching YouTube every month and uploading over 100 hours of content to YouTube every minute. So it's no wonder that the largest source of unmonetized music listening comes from something that the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, the IFPI, calls the value gap. Alex Jacobs joined us by phone to shed some light on the value gap and what closing it could mean for the music industry. When uh, in the early days of the internet, the US government, the European Union and other governments passed uh, laws uh, such as the DMCA in the US and the e-commerce directive in Europe that uh, set up these so-called safe harbors, these liability limitations for genuinely neutral and passive intermediaries to not be responsible for uh, copyright violations occurring on material that was going across their pipes. Um, but there is an issue with services such as YouTube and Daily Motion saying that they fit uh, in these safe harbors, whereas uh, uh, IFPI's belief is that these services are curating music, uh, promoting music, monetizing music in a very active manner. And so they really should not sit in those safe harbors. They should be much more akin to a, a Deezer or a Spotify, and they should secure licenses in the same way as those that those companies do. Uh, and we see at the moment... Uh, that these uh, the, these smaller uh, in number uh, subscription services, smaller number of users are generating around double uh, the amount in revenue for the recording industry as these uh, these services that sit within the safe harbors. So that's that's the kind of the value gap in a nutshell. It is something that we believe um, policymakers need to address. Uh, ensure there's a level playing field between the different digital services, so that um, the revenues are coming back into the industry. It often seems lost in the discussion that really YouTube is sort of the 800-pound gorilla in this space. 
Well, YouTube is uh, the most popular music service, uh, digital music service in the world in terms of its user base. Uh, it claims more than uh, a billion users overall. Uh, and then if you look at the amount of uh, videos that are streamed that are music, it's, it's incredibly high. I think it's fair to say at the moment nine of the top ten uh, videos uh, ever streamed on YouTube are music. And I think if you look down through the top hundred, the overwhelming majority are music. People are going online not just to discover music, but also as a kind of alternative consumption channel to the other digital services. Um, so, of course, you know, there, there's, that's great. Um, we're pleased the music's out there. We're pleased that hundreds of millions of people are, are listening to it. But uh, the, the costs of producing music, of promoting artists, investing in talent, uh, haven't diminished in the digital age. Uh, and that's why we feel that uh, services such as YouTube, such as Dailymotion, should be licensed in the same way that a Spotify or a Deezer are, so that there is the revenue available to invest in talent, so that the industry can sustainably grow again. What do you think will be required to change the licensing rubric under which YouTube is able to put up music? In Europe, for example, uh, with the digital single market agenda, the European uh, Commission is looking very closely at this area. And so that's the first uh, opportunity we have to really engage uh, and to get them to you know, ensure that the e-commerce directive that they passed is uh, enforced fairly and uniformly across the European Union uh, and, and that uh, you know, it's made quite clear that these services shouldn't be in the safe harbour. They are uh, promoting and distributing music in, in the same way that, uh, as I say, a Spotify or a Deezer is. YouTube qualifies for low music licenses in the United States under the safe harbour provided by the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. If the law changes and the digital music value gap closes, and at least a portion of YouTube's massive market share is captured in paid subscriptions, and many more people listen to music on Spotify, Deezer, Tidal, and whatever Apple does with the new Beats music service, the future could be flush with cash. Tom Silverman runs the New Music Seminar and Tommy Boy Entertainment. He believes that a $100 billion music industry is possible. And the biggest thing holding us back is subscribers. There's 27.1 million subscribers to SiriusXM, and there was uh, uh, 100 million subscribers to uh, television um, subscriptions, including uh, cable and satellite. Um, maybe it's closer to 96 now, but you know, in, the, in that realm. So we believe that uh, 100, 100 million subscribers in the U.S. is attainable, and probably another 150 to 200 million in the rest of the developed music world. So that could get us to about 350 million subscribers worldwide. And if they can generate $70 each, you can do the math and say, okay, that's $21 billion alone just from that versus the 15 that we are now. And there'll still be music sales. There'll still be downloads and physical sales. There'll still be performance revenue. There'll still be sync. So there'll be another... 10 or 15, um, well, let's just say another $10 billion of revenue on top of that at that point in time. So, you know, that takes us halfway there. The only way we're going to get the rest of the way there probably is by the developing world, which is where all the people are. And it's not going to be at a $10 a month subscription, but something built into uh, every phone subscription that might be 50 cents to a dollar a month that's just built in. And it's not a big number compared to the 10. It's one-tenth to one-twentieth of what we're getting now. But it's of such a huge number that the number could be massive. 
So you believe the boost in revenue would be equally massive? We're on the way. The most important thing, and this is coming up time again, is that you have to believe that it can happen. If you're a creator, you're in the music business or you're in any of the creative industries, you have to believe that we can increase the value of creation again and we can find a way to integrate creation with technology in a way that actually generates more revenue than it ever did before. If you don't believe it, it absolutely can't be done. So we're starting with belief, and you know I hope everybody that's listening buys into that because if you don't believe it, you know you can forget about it right now and you can turn off your your uh, podcast because there's no no point in going any further. Economics may be the dismal science, but here at Musonomics. We think music's future will be far less dismal than its recent past. That's our show for this week. Thank you to our guests, Larry Rosen, Alex Jacobs, and Tom Silverman. If you like what you heard, please, please, please give us the maximum five stars on iTunes. Tell your friends and tell us at musonomics.org. The Musonomics podcast was produced at NYU by Sam Behrens, Travis Fodor, Karina Barroso, Alex Lechtman, and Anayeli Perez. Special thanks to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. From the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Program, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening to Musonomics. everything around me. Yeah. Check this old fly shit out. Word up. Cash, take you up and down the joint. Cream, get the here money. We, here we go. Dollar, dollar, Check bill, this shit. Yo.